truth from your word be uh, heard and uh, heeded this morning. I pray this in the name of your son Jesus and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. One of my heroes of the faith is a missionary named David Brainerd. I've quoted him to you many times. He lived from 1718 to 1747 and died from tuberculosis at just 29 years of age. He was a humble, sickly, often depressed young man who God used to bring the gospel to the Seneca and Delaware Indians. Thanks to his contemporary, another of my heroes, Jonathan Edwards, we have portions of David David Brainerd's diary preserved for us in print. And the pages of that diary give us a rare glimpse into the heart of a truly passionate follower of Jesus. He knew what it was to suffer in this life. I like quoting from his diary because the way he expressed his spiritual longings and his physical and emotional uh, miseries strikes a chord with many of us who have had similar sufferings in life. Listen to his diary entry from January 14th, 1743. He was only 25 years old when he penned this, and he was a few months away from beginning his ministry among the Indians at Conomique, which is located near Albany, New York. Here's what he wrote. My spiritual conflicts today were unspeakably dreadful heavier than the mountains and overflowing floods. I seemed enclosed, as it were, in hell itself. I was deprived of all sense of God, even of the being of a God. And that was my misery. This is the distress, the nearest akin to the torments of the damned in hell that I ever endured. The, their torment, I am sure, will consist much in being deprived of God and consequently of all good. This taught me the absolute dependence of the creature upon God the Creator for every crumb of happiness it enjoys. Oh, I feel that if there was no God, though I might live forever, I should be 10,000 times more miserable than a toad. My soul was in such anguish I couldn't eat, but felt, as I supposed, a poor wretch would that is just going to the place of execution. I was almost swallowed up with anguish. What Brainerd is describing there is a sense of spiritual abandonment. He felt as if God had forgotten him. We don't know the situation that David was in when he penned the words to Psalm 13, but they, are, they express a very similar sense of abandonment. So as we look at them this morning, let's ask this question. What are we to do when we are in such anguish that we can't hang on for another minute? When the pain is so bad or the grief so overwhelming that we cry out like David, how long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
Where have you gone, Lord? The Holy Spirit gave us Psalm 13 for days like that. This psalm is a cry to God for rescue. It's a lament. In fact, of the 13 psalms we've studied so far this summer, this is the ninth lament. And I, and I have to admit, as when I opened up the passage a couple of weeks ago and I began studying it, I thought, another lament. This is so heavy. This is supposed to be the bright and cheery summer psalms. And yet here we are, lament number nine. We're beginning to see repeating patterns now. Pray, trust God, seek refuge in the Lord. And Psalm 13 has similar themes. For some of you, these laments are giving you tools in your spiritual tool belt to endure the suffering that you're going through right now. But others of you are, are not in the throes of suffering, um, at least not today. I want to encourage you, though, to listen carefully to this psalm for at least these three reasons. First, you might not feel the need today to lament, but in the words of Spurgeon, you will do so ere long if you be a man after the Lord's own heart. You see, Jesus promised that in the world you will have tribulation. So you might not feel the need today, but soon enough you will. So listen closely and learn what it is to lament. Number two, though you might not feel the need today, you probably know someone who does. Look, look around you. These are your brothers and sisters. Some are suffering this morning. Others are grieving. And we are called to encourage one another and to build up one another. So listen to this psalm so that you can be a help to your brothers and sisters. And number three, don't underestimate your own need for lament. These words apply broadly. They're not just for enemy attacks against a king in a country. They are for the unrelenting attacks of our spiritual enemies, the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of the evil against whom we wrestle. If you're even remotely engaged in those battles, you know there will be times that you feel as if God has abandoned you. And this psalm is for days like that. So let's learn what strengthened David to go through this dramatic change. In six verses, he goes from groaning to glorifying. Or as Spurgeon put it, he goes from sighing to singing. The dramatic change in only six verses. I see in this morning's psalm four ways for us to face our suffering. First, pour out your hearts to the Lord. Verse 1. This song begins with five rapid-fire questions. The first is the overarching question, How long, O Lord? It's rhetorical, as are all five of the questions, which means that David isn't asking God for information. This is a song, and these words are poetry, and they're meant to express emotion. David is expressing his heart. 
And since we'll be talking much about emotions, ladies, you may need to help your husbands understand some of these concepts. I say they're rhetorical not only because they're poetry, but also because of how the question is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. This isn't original to me, but listen to how the question is used in Numbers chapter 14. This is just one example. Numbers chapter 14, this is the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. How long? And there's the question, the same words in the original language. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Now clearly, God wasn't wondering when these people might stop their griping. He knows absolutely everything. He knows down to the very second how long they will continue to grumble. What he's expressing in terms that humans can understand was that their grumbling was intolerable and must stop. So the how long, O Lord, of verse 1 is an expression of the anguish that David is feeling. He doesn't know if he can hang on much longer. So he cries out in anguish. Notice, though, that David's rhetorical questions here are not merely outbursts of emotion. They are lament, which means that they are cries from the heart, respectfully addressed to God. And that's an important fact, not only because it distinguishes an outburst of emotion from a lament, but because it tells us something of David's faith. He was distressed, and he was trying to understand what God was doing, and so he turns and that's an act of faith. He turns to God and pours out his heart. He directs his cries to the Lord, just as we're told to do in Psalm 62. Trust in him at all times. Trust in him. There's the faith. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Why? Because God is a refuge for us. And that's what David was doing here. He's pouring out his heart to the Lord. Here's question number two of the five. We're still in verse one. Will you forget me forever? This is the sense of spiritual abandonment that David Brainerd experienced. This is the feeling of being deprived of all sense of God. It's the very opposite of, being mind, of him being mindful of you. Of him giving, us, giving you a sense of his presence, answering you and acting on your behalf. When the pain won't let up, when God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers, and when it feels like he is just distant, the heart cries out, Will you forget me forever? Another psalmist puts it like this Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Of course, the answer is no. But for now, let David pour out his heart to the Lord. <coughs> in the New Testament, you'll recall, you recall that Jesus used a lament very similar to this. In the darkness that swallowed the land as he hung beaten and bloody on the cross. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemasabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He took his lament directly from Psalm 22, which mirrors David's lament in this psalm. So with a precedent like that, it is no leap for me to encourage you to pour out your heart to the Lord, especially when you feel as if he has forgotten you. Question number three. We haven't left verse one. How long will you hide your face from me? We've already encountered these words in previous psalms. For God to shine his face upon us is for him to smile, as it were, to smile lovingly at us, to bless us, to rescue us from our misery. It is for him to be gracious to us. But for him to hide his face from us is for him to seemingly turn away, for him to ignore our needs and our misery. It means that there will be no deliverance or blessing for us. It is a terrifying experience for God to hide his face from you. And it causes the distressed soul to cry out to him. Some of you this morning feel this way. You feel as if God is hiding from you. And I say pour out your hearts to him. Question four, verse two. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You see, David's sense of abandonment and the feeling that God was hiding his face from him left him wrestling internally with his own thoughts. His brain was in a knot trying to figure out how to fix his problem. He's obsessing over his situation and he can't find a solution. He can't rescue himself. And it seems as if God is ignoring him. He has nowhere to turn. He's at his wit's end. And that sorrow haunts him every minute of the day. That's how many of us deal with our troubles. We obsess over our miserable condition. We rack our brains for a way out. We wake up at night thinking about it. We can't fix it and the sorrow won't go away. You're wrestling today. Might be from a broken marriage, a wayward child, betrayal by friends or family. It might be cancer or your own addictions. But if you are wrestling, I say pour out your heart to the Lord. <clears throat> Question number five. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Not only does it feel as if God has abandoned you, but now your enemies are gloating. It makes the pain even worse. We don't know who David's enemy was or if this is an allusion to depression, sickness, or death. We, we don't know, but the point is clear. The enemy seems to be getting the upper hand, and it's driving David deeper and deeper toward despair. And so what does he do? He laments. And he uses those five questions to pour out his heart to the Lord. Before we move into verse 3, let me, let me give you some encouragement. Laments can be heavy. I don't want to wait to the end of the sermon to, to, to say this. First, for the child of God, your sense of spiritual abandonment is temporary. 
It will not last forever. This is God speaking to his people. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Here's Spurgeon. Oh, dear child of God, if you have lost the light of your father's countenance, that's the old way of saying God's smile, his face. If you lost the light of your father's countenance and you sigh after it, you shall have it again very soon. You will find that the hidings of his face are over and the light of his countenance is again your joy. Take comfort in that. Your troubles are temporary. Also, your sense of spiritual abandonment is exactly that. It is a sense. A real and painful sense, but a sense nonetheless. God has not actually abandoned his children. Let the words of Isaiah 49 soothe your suffering soul. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. That's the pouring out of the heart. That's the lament. Now listen to God's beautiful response. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? That would be unthinkable. Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Such is the steadfast love of the Lord. Take comfort. Your troubles are temporary, and your God never actually abandons his own. Point number two, petition the Lord. Don't, as Spurgeon put it, don't go on hugging your trouble, but lay it before the Lord. Verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. To consider there simply means look. Look at my miserable condition, Lord. But don't just look at me. Take action. Answer me. Don't stay silent. Don't be distant from me. Come to my rescue. Answer my prayer. Again, this says something of the faith that David had in the steadfast love of the Lord. Just as he directed his cries to the Lord, so he directs his petition to the Lord in faith. And here's the kernel. Of David's petition. Verse 3. Light up my eyes. Light up my eyes. It's a petition for God to restore his strength. Or as Calvin worded it, to breathe life back into him. Again, this tells us something of the toll this situation was taking on David. Whatever the situation was, his very life was being sucked out of him. But what he's asking of God is that the Lord would look take action and breathe life back into him it's a simple petition that you and i can pray in faith as well consider and answer me oh lord light up my eyes i'm sure you know brothers and sisters this morning that need that prayer after making his petition then david pleads his case before the lord and he uses three arguments i don't know that we do this often in our prayers, but David does. He uses three arguments in his 
prayer to the Lord. Verses 3 and 4. Lest I sleep the sleep of death, and lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, and 3. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. At first, he argues that unless God answers him and gives light to his eyes, he will be overwhelmed by the darkness of death. That's how helpless he felt. But not only will he die, he argues that his enemies will claim victory over him, and then they will rejoice over his fall. That last phrase, I am shaken, is a verb. It refers to dying. According to one scholar, it suggests falling down to the ground and not getting up again, not merely shaking or stumbling. It refers to dying. David is arguing if you don't act, Lord, I'm going to die. My enemies are going to claim victory, and then they're going to celebrate my demise. At first glance, those arguments might not make sense. But when you look at it in light of David's anointing as the king of Israel, it becomes clear. David is fully aware that the king is the representative of God's people. An attack on him would be an attack on God's own. So God's commitment to his promises to his people and his own honor was in question here. And that's the force behind David's arguments. Those arguments might not apply to our situation directly, but the principle of pleading our case before God is important. And here's why I think that. As we begin to think through the reasons or the arguments, if you will, behind our petitions, behind our prayers, what we're doing is we're aligning our will with God's. That could take some serious soul searching as we think of what we're petitioning our God for. Why do we want what we're asking of Him? What's our motive? And by aligning our will with His, we can then pray, Thy will be done, as the Lord taught us to do. And for those times when His will is not clear to us, or if it's hidden from us, we simply pour out our hearts in faith to our Father in heaven, who is completely trustworthy, and we can pray for His will to be done. Here's how pleading your case in faith and aligning your will with God might look. Father, my son is in the hospital and his kidneys are failing. What I desire is that you would heal him, Lord. That's the desire of my heart. You're all powerful. You're the great physician. And my desire is for you to glorify yourself in the healing of this child. But I don't know your will in this situation. It's hidden from me. But I do know that I can trust you. You are faithful and you are good. You are all-knowing and you have your glory and the good of your children ever in view. So I trust you. I want my child to be healed, but you know what is best. I trust you. Your will be done. Now that is far easier for me to write and say than it is to feel and pray from the heart. And that's why we need to learn how to lament. Spurgeon gave us one other reason to 
plead our case with God. He said that David rightly uses his fear of death as an argument with God in prayer. Because deep distress has in it a kind of claim upon compassion. Not a claim of right, but a plea which has power with grace. I think what he's saying there is that when a person begs for help and bases his plea on his abject misery, his absolute helplessness, there's a kind of obligation for compassion that that kind of request carries. It's not a right that he can demand, but the request carries a certain weight or a persuasiveness with it that begs grace from the hearer. Be that as it may, the principle remains, plead your case before God as you align your will with His. Point number four. Put your trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse five. But, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is where that dramatic shift takes place in David. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. What a precious but this is, said Spurgeon. You can hear the chain rattle as the anchor goes down to hold the vessel. Being forgotten by God is worse than death. If you remember, Brainerd called it hell. But the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself. So that's where we place our trust. Now, how is it that David could know? How could he know that he could bank on God's steadfast love? How could he know that his trust wouldn't be in vain? How could he know that God was for him and not against him? We can answer that in a word, but first let me read a passage to you that David was certainly aware of. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. This is Moses speaking to Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. It was not because you were more in number, more than other people, that the Lord it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Why did God love Israel? Because they were a great nation? No, they were tiny. So why did he choose them? In a word, it was his sovereign grace. It was not because of their greatness or their innate goodness or their performance. In fact, your entire history was one of rebellion against him. God loved them, chose them, and rescued them from slavery because he is a promise-keeping God of grace. So as we consider 
what it means to put our trust in the Lord in times of trouble. Let's try to see what that looks like today. As New Testament believers, we see clearly what David could see only dimly and at a distance. That is, the greatest display of God's steadfast love was at the cross. It was there that his love for a world filled with sinners would fully flower. God sent his son to save sinners who were dead in their sins. There were no exceptions among us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And the penalty for our sin is death. But, there's another precious but. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Behold the steadfast love of the Lord. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's wrap this up and bring it home. Don't lose sight of the question that we started with this morning. What are we to do when we are in such anguish that we can't hang on for another minute? Or when the pain is so bad or the grief so overwhelming that we cry out like David, how long? Well, the answer so far has been, turn to Psalm 13, pour out your heart to the Lord, petition Him, plead your case before Him, and then place your trust in His steadfast love. But if God's steadfast love shines most brilliantly at the cross, then what's the connection between my suffering, my distress, my grief today, and what happened back then? If we are among those who have called upon the name of the Lord, that is, if we have put our trust in what Christ did on the cross, and by trust, I mean put our faith in, believe in, rest in, cling to for our very life. And I can say with full assurance that God's steadfast love is for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself, himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And here's the connection between our suffering today and the steadfast love of God in the gospel. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, shall your distress, your persecution, your famine, your nakedness, your danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed 
all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all those things, in all of your suffering, in all of your grief, we are more than conquerors. Nothing we are currently suffering can ultimately harm us if we are in Christ. We are, in a sense, immortal until he decides otherwise. And we can bank on that with blood-bought confidence. And what's the result of our putting our trust in the steadfast love of Christ at the cross? Two things. A rejoicing heart and rejoicing lips. Verses 5 and 6. I have trusted in your steadfast love, therefore my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. You may try, Spurgeon said, to repress your emotion, but if the Lord has really brought you up out of a horrible pit, your emotion will not be altogether repressed. You will feel as if you should hold your peace, the very stones would begin to cry out. A rejoicing heart soon makes a praising tongue. And the basis of our rejoicing heart and tongue is this, verse 6, because he has dealt bountifully with me. David closes his song by focusing his mind on God's bountiful dealings with him. God has been gracious, therefore I rejoice. Again, for those who are in Christ, that kind of grace is not difficult to see. The cross of Christ stands ever as our infinitely bountiful display of God's steadfast love to us. It makes the heart rejoice and it makes the lips to praise. Let me pray for us. Father, many of us don't know what it means to Lament. Some, some of us do, but many of us don't. We, we don't understand what it is to have such anguish in our hearts that we burst forth with our complaints to you and our prayers to you to, to not abandon us, but to listen. So Father, I pray this morning for for each person here who is lamenting, who is feeling the pain of grief, Father, I pray that you would comfort them with your word. Father, I pray they would be comforted as they place their trust in the steadfast love of the Lord in Jesus the cross. Father, I pray that those who are not suffering right now would would know how best to bring comfort to those who are. And Father, I pray that you would prepare us for those times which will inevitably come when there will be a need to amend. So Father, thank you for this song. Thank you for these words. And thank you for listening to our lament. 
Jesus' name, amen.